for this podcast, we're proud to partner with Zurich Life and Investments. As one of the last true independent life insurers, Zurich has always believed in the value of advice and the professionals who provide it. They continue to invest in programs such as this one that are designed to strengthen the health and reputation of the advice profession. They're excited about the chance to partner with us, XY Advisor, to help shape the future direction of advice and help make it more accessible to more Australians. To find out more or to check out some of the latest advisor support tools, visit the website or ask your Zurich BDM. Mr. Brian Parker, one of Sun Super's finest. Hey, Good to be here. Not bad at all. Not bad for Friday afternoon. Yeah, there's worse places to be. Really? No, I can't even. Oh, <laughs> when you s- Go straight for the jugular. What a start. Come on. Far away. <laughs> Mate, do you normally work out of Brisbane? No, no, I work out of Sydney. No. Ah, okay. So all the investment guys are in Sydney. Yep. Uh, but the sort of engine room is in Bridge Vegas, yeah. Right. Is that because you get better uh, investment results in Sydney than Brisbane? Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I want to talk about that. So do, 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 you, do you think in a colder climate, p- people make smarter, more rational, less emotional financial and uh, investment decisions? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. And maybe not colder, but maybe in, um, you know, cities are financial centre. I mean, all the sort of investment, um, all the financial markets, most of the investment expertise is kind of based in Sydney and Melbourne. That's the reality. And what does it take for someone to have investment expertise? It's hard to say. I think a lot of patience. Um, Yeah, there's a certain amount of technical stuff you need, but um, patience, um, a sense of humility, knowing that you just do not have a monopoly on wisdom, that there are plenty of really, really smart people out there. I mean, I think I call it the sort of Clint Eastwood approach to investing. I mean, a man's got to know his limitations, right? Mm. Um, overconfidence is death, um, which is why a lot of men tend to make really crap investors compared to women. There's a lot of evidence for that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, knowing your limitations, um, being aware that you do not know everything um, and being aware that, you know, the world is an uncertain place. You know, you, you know less than you think you do about how the world's going to evolve from here, you know, and that goes to overconfidence you know people who make overconfident investment decisions end up stuffing up do you see uh, do, do you spend much time around financial planners yeah a fair bit um in my former lives i spent a lot more so i spend my time around um other investors um but a lot of time around members around uh um, policy committee members for corporate super plans um the old journal, um and a fair few financial advisors as well and who do you think does financial planning well what, what's the type of characteristics of a good financial planner in your opinion? I think someone who's a therapist. Um, I always find it, uh, I think, you know, the investing side of things, there are too many financial planners out there, I think, who they're kind of frustrated investors in some way. The best financial planners I've come across have been kind of professional handholders. Their job is to, is to hold their client's hand through their financial life. The investing is actually a small part of that. Um, much more, I think the best financial advisors actually are behavioral analysts in a way. They manage clients' behavior so that clients don't do dumb stuff. That's the prime function of a financial planner, I reckon. So Brian's like, just leave it to me, guys. You just go out there and talk to people. Do you think? No, that's a hard, literally the behavioral stuff is the hardest thing. Like you might generate, you know, really great investment returns, but if the end member or if the end client ends up doing really dumb things from, a, say, a timing perspective, like buying into something after a whole bunch of other people have made money, hmm. or getting out after they've um, suffered an, a paper loss, those sort of really bad decisions end up 
pretty much destroying the impact of otherwise good investment performance. Mm. So there's a whole bunch of behavioural finance stuff which says that you know the market might have delivered say eight or nine percent over the last twenty or thirty years, but the average investor only got three or four. And it's not taxes and it's not fees. It's generally bad behaviour. People actually buying high and selling low instead of doing the opposite, or ideally instead of just sort of sitting tight. So do you think you think sequencing risk that that sort of any loss after the age of 55 is is a major threat? I think it's a big deal. Um, and what it means is that, look, you do not want a really big market correction ruining your retirement. Um, that's a big, big learning from the GFC. The number of people who had their retirement plans just kind of destroyed or really badly dented by being overexposed to share markets during that period. Um, it's just kind of it's kind of weird that one of the truisms of investing is that you know how good your retirement ends up being sometimes depends on when you were lucky or unlucky enough to be born. Right. You know, if you just happen to retire at the wrong time, um, you're out of luck compared to someone who might have retired just a few years earlier or even a year later. Um, yep. So managing that sequencing risk, I think, is going to be is a is a pretty big challenge. Um, yes, you still want to have some exposure to growth assets, but you just you you know you want to make sure you if you think about it from a like a pilot, you know you want the smoothest landing you can. Right, and I think again, this is where good financial advice can really kick in. It helps um, fund members, it helps their clients come into their retirement and have a smooth landing. Yep. So you're you're, you're an economist, uh, and I could tease out that uh, sequencing risk was a big deal. What's some other key uh, macro things that that you think advisors should be paying attention to? Uh, macro thing, I reckon the environment right now is really really challenging um, because if you look at the kind of universe of investments out there. Um, nothing's cheap, right? So if you were starting an investment journey from scratch and saying, well, I'm just going to go out there and buy stuff that's cheap, well, good luck with that. Nothing's cheap. You know, bonds are expensive, property's expensive, shares are expensive. You know, even like 12 to 18 months ago, if we were having this conversation, if you said to me, well, what's cheap? I would have said, oh, look, this a bit of value in the emerging markets, you know, it's emerging, emerging share markets. Yeah, well, that was a year and a half ago. Um, that was like 30% ago. Well, even there, it's hard to find stuff which is cheap. So it means that you end up sort of looking and saying, well, okay, what looks relatively attractive or at least maybe least unattractive, which is not a very satisfying position to start your investment journey in when you're just saying, you know, it's almost like saying, look, I like the share market because it's relatively cheap compared to, say, bonds or cash or term deposits. Yeah, that's fine, but it's like being the best-looking person in a room full of really ugly people, right? It's not a great endorsement. <laughs> Adrian actually uh, experiences that from... Time to time. Oh, I hear you, brother. I'm into <laughs> got a, I've been told I've got a great head for radio. But this is this is scary when you see this. Oh, you got a great voice for a podcast, Brian. Right. It's um, it's it. Look, we're we're kind of late cycle. The past returns have been brilliant, and I think the main thing we need to get across the message we need to get across to you know the clients of financial advisors and super fund members is that you know what, no one should do their planning assuming. They're going to have a run through to retirement where you get double digit returns per annum forever. It just doesn't work that way. We've been really, really fortunate for the last five, six, seven years. Um, you know, back in February '09, when the world was about to end, you know, just when you think things couldn't get any worse, they don't. They get better. Right? Yep. And you've had a run of really good returns, but it just means now, okay, the rearview mirror looks really pretty, but the windscreen looks a bit scarier. Look, we can't comment on particular banks, but you know, one thing. Let's let's wide it out and talk about Europe, right? Okay. Um, on our list of worries, uh, Europe has been there for quite a while. Uh, not because of Greece. No one really cares about Greece unless you happen to be Greek, okay? Um, but you know, the main game. Sorry, Adrian. Maybe, you know, <laughs> but the main game has always been Italy. 
Yeah, man. Um, you know, and the only reason people worried a lot about, for example, Greece and Portugal and, and Spain is that yeah, Spain was a kind of big deal, mm. um, but it wasn't so much those economies. It was like, what the hell happens if this spreads to Italy, mm. right? They're smaller versions of Italy. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, Italy is, is, a, is a big deal. It's, it's a G7 biggest. economy. It's a big, big bond market, a whole bunch of yeah. bond investors all around the world own Italian debt. The banking system, something like 18% of all the bank loans in Italy are like non-performing, which is pretty dire. Um, the economy is kind of burdened by a heap of debt, bad, bad banking system, high unemployment. It's just kind of a very stagnant economy. It's funny, you know, it's it's you know the, the great lifestyle economy of the world, but mm. in, a, in an economic fundamental sense, it's a real worry. And then they've just voted in a government, which is yeah. very anti- EU. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just, it's part of this global trend. You know, one of the big things is that as an investor, uh, certainly in my career, yeah, you kind of kept an eye on politics. You know, you did, everyone was, you'd sort of needed to be at least an amateur political analyst, but it wasn't the main game. You kept a weather eye on politics, but, you know, economic fundamentals were very much the main game. And that's still mostly true, but now we find ourselves worrying about, about politics and about the, um, the path, the policy direction, if you like, in a lot of economies, uh, which you didn't really have to worry about before. Um, and I can't see that really curing itself in the short term. And it's not just Trump, it's wider than that. You know, it's Brexit, you know, it's Trump, it's what's happened in Italy. Um, it's what happened in some economies in Eastern Europe where you get some sort of right-wing populists start to emerge. Austria as well, right? Yeah, you know, and, and this is a worry. Um Luckily, um, you know, some electoral systems where you might otherwise throw up some pretty disappointing candidates like France, for example, or to some extent here, the electoral system doesn't tend to allow it. Um, but in other economies where it does allow it, it means you get some pretty left field um, political be- Because outcomes. they sort of have five parties and you only need to be the top of the five or you might have, for example, like in our case, you know, uh, preferential voting system. So it's really, really hard for mm. um, someone on the fringes of politics to, to be to form a government. It's pretty much impossible, right? Yeah. Um, in France or in any system where you've got a, pres- a two two rounds of presidential voting, so you have a runoff between the top two contenders. Um, so, for example, in France, you didn't get Marine Le Pen because you know she just wasn't going to be a contender in the final round because um, all the other parties just united, kind of to make sure she lost. Right. Um, you could argue that she came uncomfortably close to victory, but nevertheless, she lost, right? Right. Um, so politics, I think, is also something that – and there's not much you can do about it from an investment point of view. It's very, very hard to invest uh, for the kind of volatility that politics and geopolitics throws up, but um, we have to keep more of an eye on political developments than perhaps we have in previous decades. Well, well let, let – and, and I guess I was uh, extrapolating your point just then. Uh, if, the, if these uh, isolationist – type governments get in, then they, they want to remove themselves from Euro. And and now, okay, that's now happened in Italy. Can can we go through some scenarios? Oh, look, and so far the government that's been formed has kind of maybe sort of softened the stance, the sort of anti-Euro oh, okay. stance and anti-Euro stance they've had. Okay. But I don't think we're out of the woods there yet. Right. Um, well, let's talk about, let's, yeah, let's, I mean, let's get, theorize. Yeah. I mean, look, getting Let's say if they leave of, the Euro. Yeah. Well, getting out of the Euro is a lot, lot harder um, for a country like Italy. I mean, all its debts are pretty much denominated in euro. No one's going to be want to be repaid in like new lira um, or whatever you want to call it. But what um, if they call it new sweet lira? 
And it's not going to happen, man. No one would fall for that crap. Um, so at the end of the day, um, you go through just massive disruption in one of the major economies of Europe, and that's that's really dire. Um, leaving the EU itself, um, we've already, I think, seen with Brexit, um, the grown-ups are not in charge. And if you're going to actually try and extricate yourself from that after sort of being so enmeshed in it for decades, you really need serious grown-ups in charge, and they're just not. I just, what's pretty clear to me from looking at Brexit and the whole thing that's happening there is that no one really has a clue how to manage this. They really are flying blind, and um, I can't say I'm all that optimistic about how that's going to pan out. Is it actually still happening? Yeah, it's still going to happen. Right. Now, there's all these calls now for, oh, look, you know, we had this vote and it was close, and now if you put it to a vote again, it wouldn't get up. Well, you know, that's all a bit. It's all a bit late now. Uh, I'm yeah. not sure how you can actually go and say, let's have another referendum and see if we can go again. Yeah, or, kind of. Or if you put it up, or if you get a proposal and it's rubbish and it goes to a parliamentary vote, would the majority of the House of Commons vote against it? Uh, I don't know what happens then, and I don't know how the British public responds to that. Um, you know, the people who were in favour of staying would be obviously pretty happy and relieved, but, you know, the Brexiteers would be furious. And, you know, it's it's not a, it, no one really has a clue how that sort of scenario would pan out. Mm. And the other thing, too, is from an investment perspective, it's important to bear in mind, though. I mean, the UK, if instant tears, the UK is probably going to go through some short term disruption, but as a long term destination for investment capital, I mean, London is still going to be one of the major stock markets of the world. The economy is still going to be growing. It's still going to be a fairly advanced right. economy. Right. So there's still going to be investment opportunities there. So it's quite structurally sound. Yeah, I think in that's terms right. of the way it operates. Where yeah, you go, in that um, sense, you know, you go Italy and the way not. they operate in Italy. It's not at all. So that's right. why you got extra sensitivity, I guess. To yeah, I think that's right. Um, so you know, long, like for example, we just sort of invested some more money into some airports um, into the UK, into in Birmingham and Bristol. Not a large amount. We put some money in there, and the feedback was. Well, why are you doing that with Brexit and stuff? And it's like, well, yeah, in the short term, there might be some disruption, but these are assets we're not going to be holding for two or three years. We're going to be holding them for years and years and years to come, right? Mm. And so over the longer term, you know, well, the way I describe it is, look, England is still going to have really crap weather. The palms are still going to want to fly. <laughs> so if you want an airport, you're still going to make a quid, right? <laughs> Would you invest in uh, in Elon Musk's boring company, the Hyperloop? Um Want to be a bit cautious there. You know, we like to invest in assets that actually generate a profit and generate dividends so you can actually value it a bit better. We don't really like throwing money into blue sky. We do have some money into things like startups and venture capital, but not a lot. Um, we kind of prefer reliability of income. You know, if you can give me a company which actually generates an income or if you give me a, a, a property asset or an infrastructure asset where – you know, it's got an income stream attached to it, so I can work out what I'm prepared to pay for it. But, you know, So Tesla versus Ford? Well, at the moment, you know, Ford wins hands down, I would have thought, given that, you know, it's insanely profitable compared to Tesla. Mm. Um, look, Tesla may still end up being a great, great story. Um, one thing, I mean, personal view. You've got to pay for the pleasure. You've got to pay for the pleasure. But also, personal view, um, is lithium batteries really the long-term solution or is, like, hydrogen fuel cells the long-term solution? Now, Elon Musk himself has come out and said, oh, no, no, hydrogen is a really dumbass idea. Well, you'd expect him to say that, right? right. <laughs> He's in the battery business. Right. But, you know, are lithium batteries really the long-term solution or is there a proper long-term solution around sort of hydrogen fuel cells and stuff like that? Um, I think that's an interesting – and some of the car companies are sort of doing more work in that space. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, hydrogen is a more abundant element than lithium. Mm. Um you know, there was a great thing on Top Gear a few years ago uh, where um, James May is cruising around California in a Honda Clarity and he pulls up at a hydrogen pump and fills it up and off he goes. And the thing's got a range of, 
two or three hundred miles and whisper quiet and only output is steam. Not a bad idea. That is so no. cool. It is a very cool. It was a great bit of footage too, right? And, and the car itself was pretty bad ugly, but as a piece of technology, <laughs> really, really nice an expensive idea. car. It was. I think <laughs> per unit it was something like nine hundred grand each or something Whoa. stupid like that. Yeah. But this is the thing. Any new technology is like that, and so you know you need to get scale. And this is where the whole global car industry is going to have to make a massive choice over coming decades. Is that okay? What is the end game technology? Is it really battery? Um, or is it something more advanced again, you know, the hydrogen fuel cell story? Well, actually, you get me thinking don't about- don't answer that. I'm just sort of waxing lyrical for Yeah, a well, I'm just thinking about technology <laughs> more broadly. Like, what are you guys seeing from a- Like, there's obviously a lot of disruption, a lot of um, efficiency coming into all segments of the economy. Mm. Every business is a technology business these days. Um, what, what sort of attrition slash- Have you guys done modelling on the attrition of jobs combined with the um, uptick in new jobs- how do you how do you see that playing out? Is it- oh, it's a really good question, and don't have a great answer. But let me let me just give you a few thoughts. One is that um, look, I, I do worry. I mean, I got two teenagers, and I worry about what the hell they're going to do uh, longer term for you know, employment. For employment, exactly. And the short answer is, um, you know, I have no idea what jobs are going to be around in 10, 15, 20 years time. No one does. Um, but you know what? Um, Ten years ago, there was you know was there a professional podcast studio manager? Was that a job? I don't know. Um, was <laughs> I mean, a social media manager? Joe. Yeah. Did your job exist, Joe? You know, um, <laughs> how many jobs were there for like uh, search engine optimizers? I mean, that, that, that's a job that didn't exist. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And so, um, who knows what kind of jobs are going to come out in the future? One thing I would say though is that um, I call it. Um, I remember when I was at uni, um, the guy I was in the college I was at and the block I was in. There was one art student, and there was like me doing economics. There was a couple of commerce guys, a couple of lawyers, and a couple of engineers, right? And um, the arts guy got sick of being picked on. So on the toilet paper dispenser, um, he he wrote um, law, engineering, commerce, economics degrees. Please take one, right? Oh. Which was his revenge. And we were like, oh, good on you, Patrick. Da, 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 da. Mm. But now I, I think the next now he um, serves awesome fries though. Oh, look, exactly right. Makes a hell of a <laughs> makes a hell of a latte. Yeah. Right? But um, but my point is he's about to get his revenge because I think the next 20 or 30 years, it's the creative stuff. It's the human stuff. Yeah, um, the lateral thinking. Yeah, that's the thing. The, the stuff that can't be sort of, you know, artificially intelligence competed away or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, do you really want a robot looking after you when you're old and sick? You know, in Japan, they're actually developing robots that can care for their elderly because they, they're going to run out of people to care for their elderly. Yeah, right? they got a lot of them. Do you really want to – yeah, exactly. Do you really want a, um, um, a robot caring for you, for you when you're 90 oh, and in an age? I don't so think I want sad. to. It's sad. It's really sad. And so I just think that these sort of um, human roles, um, communication roles um, are going to – really be um, the source of growth in the future. Anything that you can pretty much automate away, which, to be honest, is a fair chunk of Mm. the average business degree, um, a fair chunk of accounting, and even perhaps engineering. um, Unless you're creating something new. So I just think creation and innovation and communication and human skills, um, that's really the future. I'll tell you what's creepy is uh, AI can even create, as, as an ex-muso, I, I would shudder to call myself a muso these days, but um, as an ex-muso, I, I have a major interest in AI music. 
And I don't know if you guys have ever sat down and listened to to these. This is the first I've heard of it. Man, it is. Is this crazy. like when you go to Spotify, play me something, and it's just like- if if anyone goes onto YouTube and just type in artificial intelligence uh, symphony. There, there are programs out there that have just consumed so much music that they now have, you know, from wind pipe one and wind pipe two through every single instrument in an in a orchestra down to, you know, cymbal, right? And they write these gorgeous symphonies that, that, that have been born out of – although music truly is maths, so, so there is that, you know, it's all just – hertz per yeah. second so so um but by no stretch of the imagination would i think that ai couldn't develop a brand new building that's never been designed that is structurally and artistically beautiful because it consumes all the designs of buildings all over the world and then with with ai or what we call ai which isn't truly ai um so so i'm actually quite worried that even the lateral thinking creative yeah. stuff is going to be i mean if if you you get you get uh i believe it's ibm watson that essentially dreams and and what they do is input data it 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 i mean entrepreneurship truly is taking an idea and trying to do something with it to attract people or other businesses mm. to use it well imagine if under big data that this these ai um, uh, programs can understand human behavior and it can dream a million different um, business plans, go-to-market strategies, you know, and to the point where they, they're pumping out perfect products and perfect services while, while listening to its own perfect music mm. and, and, and housed in its own perfectly designed. I'm sitting here going, yeah, humans are a bug, not a feature. I don't know. I mean, I like the idea of, you know, I mean, if I go to a pub and I want to see a live act, I don't want to see a laptop sitting in the corner, right? Well, I there mean, is I that. Want, you know, I, to me, it, I want a human and I want a human with all their imperfections and all the, um, you know, someone, a human that's actually on stage and, and is kind of hungry to do well. Well, I agree, living, but, you know? but and, will and AI like, agree? Well, well, will I AI look at you and say, it might look at you and say, or me or any, all of us and go, well, we don't care if you that's what you want. Okay, well, which begs the question. I mean, if I, AI, I mean, anyone has to write music that has a market, right? Yes. I mean, will, uh, if I um, get a piece of AI to design a symphony, will every human being that listens to that love it? Or will enough human beings listen to that love it and make, and make money for who? Like I know someone's got to be behind this. This is this is the weird thing about AI that freaks me out. It makes humans redundant. I don't know. Have you seen that movie, um, uh, the kids, uh, uh, Wally? You know where the uh, yeah. the, you know where the humans are just these blobs who just cruise around on spaceships, and all they do is shop and get looked after by robots. Right? Yeah. Now is that the future? Oh God, <laughs> it's, that is just utterly. Ch- I remember seeing that at the time and said, you know, like so many of these um, sort of um, uh, kids, you know very sophisticated cartoons there's elements of truth and you look at the future and go really so we're going to make the planet so disgusting that uh we're just going to be cruising around the universe on giant spaceships and just getting fed and sold stuff we don't need and robots are just going to sort it and end up sort of controlling it i know i'm not sure that's and even in that movie the humans do get their revenge it's either that or the matrix (laughs) 
I think I'd rather the cruise ship. Yeah, just correct. Constantly fed and, fed and watered for drinks. all eternity. You know? Exactly. Well, it's arrogant. Like you look at you look at um, marketing or social media. Like what everyone it's converged on the personal brand so much with a lot of things and like to the, to get the cut through to people because the someone's story, personal story, narrative. Mm. That's what cuts through. So that's something that's probably going to continue. Even if you go, everything's automated. Like, because that, that just, if you assume that, well, the AI is commoditized. So what's going to differentiate amongst an AI solution? Well, it's some sort of personality coming yeah, in exactly. as a human. Yeah. I think that's the thing is that to me, um, when you know it's AI and you know it's kind of fake in that sense, mm. um, Give me a human any day, you know. Give me a human on stage, kind of sweating and working hard for their money and entertaining, have, wanting have, to entertain. People. Have you seen Google now making phone calls to people, and the person on the other end doesn't know that it's an AI? Yeah. That's creepy. Yeah, I don't want to Google ringing me up at all. To be honest, no <laughs> AI or human. I just no, no, just I'm just hanging up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I have a very low tolerance for people who ring me up, machine or human, at like tea time at night. Regardless of where they're located, I got a real <laughs> simple are. recipe. You just don't pick up your phone. Oh, uh, you got to do something. Well, that's the thing. I mean, how many people actually ring you on your landline these days? What well, do you have on the landline? Yeah, well, and the only person we don't who, have the only, the only people who ring <laughs> the only people who ring us on the landline, um, my father-in-law right. and uh, my brother-in-law. Um, <laughs> everyone else rings us on a mobile. Yeah, well, I was talking Correct. to my parents. I'm like, so you guys like how many people actually call you and like. They've got your mobile too, these people. So if you just told them that they like the rest of them are all the telemarketing calls because yeah, you've been right. in the system for 20 years with the same number. Yeah, that's right. I do know um, a guy who uh, engages telemarketers and he deliberately, if someone rings up from Mumbai or wherever, and he just engages them in conversation and keeps asking them lots of questions back and, until he wastes a good 20 minutes of their time. Oh, and then so says, no, you know, that's going to impact their KPIs massively. Yes. <laughs> yes. But he never gets a call back. Which is, you know, problem solved. That's a very good point. Because I, mean, yeah, he's he's particularly obnoxious, and he's got time to he's got time to kill. So he's yeah, you got to really like. Yeah. He's, oh, I've been waiting for your call. Thank you. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> or you just say, "Hold on," and put the phone down and walk away. Yeah, I've, I've done that. So, <laughs> so, so, um, so out of out of active investing and passive investing, this sort of index, um, because uh, Sun Super, I, I believe they've got an index uh, option on the on the Super Fund, mm. which is absurdly low in price. Yes. Like we're talking a handful of basis points or to the effect like point of zero nine or something. It's pretty cheap, Crazy and, and the reason if, what we're trying to do, um, you can you can have way too too many options, right? Again, go back to the way people make decisions. You don't want to you want to give people enough choice so that they can do sensible things if they want to build portfolios themselves. But you don't want to have like dozens and dozens of choices because people just run a mile. Yeah. Um, but also, all the investment options we've got, and I'd argue this is you know should apply to everybody. Every investment choice, every investment decision you make, every investment you make has to offer value for money. Right? Now, are there really good active managers out there who are generally good at what they do, who over time are going to actually generate enough outperformance to justify their fees? Look, like they are, but A they don't come cheap and B they don't grow on trees. So you've got to be really really careful about who you select. And we do we still use them. So in um, some of our options and certainly in our diversified options, we'll use a combination, pardon me, of Active and passive. Share and anyone managers. you share to you care to share? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'd use guys like Maple Brown Abbott that have had a good track record over the longer term. Um, 
Um, so, uh, you know, guys like um, uh, Bailey Gifford in Global Equities, for example. We also use some sort of quantitative managers as well, like Arrow Street overseas, mm. that sort of provide a bit of incremental value added at very, very low cost. So quant guys, basically. So the alternative sort of non-correlating performance. Well, they're basically trying to give a reliable alpha through time. Um, mm. And the way we sort of think about it is kind of from a pyramid. So the base of the pyramid is passive, very, very low cost, just to sort of anchor the return. Then you'll have like some active quantitative managers were pretty risk controlled but very very cheap and the top of the pyramid is like fully active uh, benchmark unaware we just pick stocks we like and don't own stocks we don't like right and let them loose right? mm. now what you end up with is you know a reasonably good risk controlled value for money portfolio um, where you know you're not just going to rely on a handful of managers to deliver um, and the fees can be kept pretty low the, the other thing we also like is um, performance fee arrangements to, mm. it sort of aligns the manager with our members mm. so um, you, I mean active managers do tend to talk themselves up in case you haven't noticed they uh, they're not <laughs> not backward in coming forward so you know if you're talking to some someone, of their returns yeah, are. <laughs> it's like it's like, yeah, well, I think you're really good too. In fact, uh, if you're prepared to back yourself, how about we pay you a uh, base fee, which is, well, we'll keep the lights on and pay your people. And if you're really that good, then we'll write you a performance check. Woo! If you don't, well, at least you keep the lights on. Yeah, back yourself. And if, and, um, you know, back yourself. And if they're prepared to. Does anyone take that? Oh, yeah. Really? Pretty, um, pretty much all the active managers in the portfolio sign up for that. Wow. So it good. helps you keep the base fee low. And it just means that, okay, if you have to write a check for outperformance, at least you're writing it for the right reasons mm. because they've delivered. And if you then go through a period of underperformance, they've got to make that back before you yeah, the clock starts. Yeah, it's got the, um, the watermark. Yeah, absolutely. Can any advisor sign up to take advice fees from Sunsuper? Yeah, you can. Um, so we um, have Any advisor? advisor? I think pretty much you can register and yeah. uh, you you can register and you can um, get access to the portal. Is there, is there ongoing advice fees? Yeah, you, we can we we can actually do ongoing advice fees. Cool. Um, so so we only industry funds where you can log in and actually see a portfolio. Oh, yeah, I see. Can, and you guys aren't technically an industry fund. Is that right? We're a multi-industry, multi-employer fund, basically. Just a just an everyday man super. What's fund. the difference Too between much. What's the difference between Sun Super and a retail super fund at this stage? Well, at the end of the day, the big big difference. Um, we don't have shareholders that need a dividend. We don't have shareholders that need a profit margin. We uh, make enough money to keep the lights on and to reinvest in the business. And any extra beyond that gets given back to members, basically. In the form of a dividend. Well, in the form of lower costs or better fees or. or or lower costs, lower fees, or better administration, or better advice, or whatever. So basically, is is, yeah. is is the is those records public? As in, we publish how, an annual report. Absolutely. Yeah, really. It, with yeah. the accounting, like how much cash in yeah, on hand and everything. Yeah, like that? we publish an annual report, yeah, including right. annual financial statements, like a, like a public that. company. Basically, yeah. Wow. And you can now, the other big thing is that we, even though we we have a sort of a Queensland heritage, and so mm. back in the eighties when the industry funds were being formed. Um, in Melbourne in particular, um, Joe Bielke-Peterson was Premier of Queensland. Um, not much missed. I grew up in Queensland, so I'm a little bit bitter and twisted, right? But back then, he basically took Quite the a character. You know, the oh, show. he was a character. That's a polite way of putting it. But back then, he said, well, look, none of our money is going south of the Tweed, so we're <laughs> going to keep our money in Queensland. So he basically 
arranged to set up a Queensland-based industry fund. Um, and so basically it's kind of nominally looked after or, you know, our nominal shareholders, if you like, are the Chamber of Commerce and Industry for Queensland, um, the Queensland branch of the AWU and the Queensland Council of Unions. And so the employers and the unions have reps, but we've also got a third of the board that's independent. So, so it's, it's a different history than... It's multiple industries. Oh, I thought it was a conglomerate. Is that how you guys ended up actually being friendly to advisors? <laughs> I mean, you can actually... Actually, um, we've got 1.3 million members, um, yeah. probably about two-thirds or maybe less now up there in Queensland. Um, well, you guys just became the third biggest, didn't you? you not the biggest, but we're certainly top third, 10. The solidly. third biggest. You guys are 40 We're one of the plus. fastest growing, absolutely. Are you pushing for this uh, top 10 for default? With the Productivity Commission, are you guys preparing for that? Well, I think we're just we're preparing for any eventuality. I reckon um, we've really taken the view that um, in this business uh, you need to get big in terms of member numbers, so you can drive your costs down and drive your fees down. Because if you don't do that. Um, you will not survive longer term. Um, mm. We certainly took the view some years ago that uh, in an industry where there is so many smaller funds that are under pressure, you don't want to be one of them. Um, and the big, the best way you can uh, not be under that kind of pressure is to grow, um, grow quickly, but also um, grow in such a way that um, you are not on the radar screen when people say you're subscale, you don't have enough members, you don't have enough thumb. And I think uh, Warren Chart at Chart West published a study maybe two years ago or three years ago where he said, look, unless you're at 10 bill under management, you're just not going to survive. You're not, mm. You don't have the scale. Um, if you did that study today, I don't know whether 10 bill would be the figure, but mm. it certainly wouldn't be any smaller. Have, have, have you guys, uh, has Sunsuper ever acquired other small industry we super did. funds? Um, so we merged with uh, Kinetic Super mm. uh, and that merger Kinetic. was finalised on uh, the 12th of May, I think, this year. Yeah, um, right. The kinetic, the kinetic board were actually that very, was X Media, right? Media then uh, yeah. more recruitment, no, recruitment, recruitment space. Right, yeah, yeah. But the kinetic board really took a decision that was um, very much in the interest of their members, and it was quite a brave decision where they said, "Look, we need to do something here. We are subscale." They kind of saw the future and started looking for potential partners, and so yeah. they ended up partnering with SunSuper. Um, from our point of view, it means that we pick up another quarter of a million members. Mm. Another, uh, I think, about four billion under management, give or take, mm. um, and it just adds to the scale, which means the cost per member can come down. What was the acquisition cost for a quarter of a million? Oh, I can't recall, mate. But it was basically a, it, it was a merger, so it was like a um, um, there's like not really an equity swap cost. sort of thing. It's basically, oh. a, you're bringing two funds together, um, so it's not really like a corporate transaction. There's no equity as, as such. To buy oh. Money. That's weird. Yeah, I don't know. Again, um, I'm just a humble economist. It's like two so, charities you know, merging together. Economists, though. Yeah. It's pretty much if you, you, you're bringing two pools of money together and two teams together. Why don't industry super funds pay a dividend to their members? Because so, whenever I hear we're for profit member, I always think, well, where's my profit? Like it's in the, the return. Yeah. At the end of the day, what are the assets of the fund? The assets of the fund, they're the member's assets. They're not the fund's assets. Totally. Right. So the assets of the member generate a return and that return is credited to the member's accounts. Um, right. The only thing that comes off that is the fees that um, go into delivering that return. So yes. yes, you pay an internal team, you pay administrators and directors and you pay external managers. But net of those fees, that's what goes into members' accounts, really. When when part of the fees we part of the fees that we charge go on really running the fund, running. So the, so the if for whatever reason there is a surplus 
on the fee, then that money would just get punted back into a return. It'd be basically a return, yeah. So, mm, you know, we generate okay. a return and we deduct enough to basically meet our costs and that's it. But the right. key, th- key, key thing is that, you know, we don't have a board and shareholders that say you must do a 10% return on our equity. Right. Because that just doesn't enter into the conversation. Right. And there's no dividends to pay. There's no return on equity targets per se. It's all about you generate a return, you cover your costs and you hand it back to members. Right. You'd have quite a like satellite view of what's going on in the fund. Like across the board. Yeah. Um, what's the trend ethical? Because I know you guys have an ethical option. How's, yeah, we do. How are you finding it? Can you see a noticeable trend? Um, we've not attracted massive inflows into that option. But okay. one thing we do do is that um, we do um, have an ESG filter on pretty much everything we do. Okay. So you've got so, an overall. Absolutely. Sort of, yeah. So any um, all the investment managers we appoint, um, they have to sign up to take into account um, environmental, social and governance factors in deciding which investments to make. They have to sign that up. That is part of the investment management agreement they sign. Cool. Um, in addition, if we um, go into any asset or any particular strategy, um, it gets voted on um, the, the key decision-making body in the investment team, the Investment Recommendation Committee, um, which is basically the chief investment officer and the senior investors. Um, including, and I sit on that committee. Um, but who also sits on that committee is the ESG manager. So mm. um, he basically uh, has a vote on everything. But even before it gets to that, um, the ESG manager looks at everything, um, and if it doesn't sort of meet um, his criteria, if it doesn't stack up from an ethical, from an environmental, social, governance um, criteria, uh, it doesn't get up. Right. We also find that um, you know when you're talking about um, ESG factors, as a general rule, we we have a preference to engage rather than sort of ban stuff. Um, the one one of the obvious exceptions is tobacco. It's very very hard to dress that up as anything other than a killer. Right, um, but um, if we see, uh, for example, um, on things like climate change, we would much rather work with companies. Um, for example, working with mining companies, and you look at what happened with some of the major mining companies that have actually moved to reduce thermal coal um, as part of their overall portfolios. And I think a big part of that has come from um, global investors saying, "Look, we've seen the future, and it's not pretty. You need to be downweighting this." And so um, we'd much rather engage um, with companies in order to change behaviour and to improve governance um, because if you basically decide, no, I'm, I'm out, I'm not going to invest with you, um, you're losing a seat at the table, you're losing a voice. Um, so we'd rather have a voice, we'd rather have a seat at the table than not. That's kind of the way we think about these issues. Wow. Do, like I guess with what options are coming through, are you guys going to start to look at, because I know there's... Um, I don't know. With that much scale, you've got the ability to bring in new options. Is there, is there anything more funky that's on well, the? I don't know. I mean, horizon? to me, um, if because I always look at things, yeah, oh, it's boring. It's just an industry fund sort of layout. Oh, you can pick a. Well, at the end of the day, you know, um, the, funky doesn't necessarily make a great investment. It's got to, anything True. has to stack up as an investment, right? Um, and to me. Um, uh, if it's funky and stacks up as an investment, it doesn't need to be a standalone. It just goes into the fund. You know, we can mm. invest in a whole range of different things. Some of them are really boring and just, oh, oh God forbid, they just make a profit and pay a dividend. How boring is that? <laughs> um, you know, sometimes funky is like t- thoroughly unprofitable, right? So oh, no, no, no. It's, Hello, this <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't want to apply, um, you know, funky is kind of nice and people who work in marketing love funky, but um, investors would rather profitable over funky any day. Totally. Well, in in the funky space slash uh, ESG sort of social space, 
impact investing, social businesses, anything around that? Like, it's something that's on the radar. It's not it's something a hard we market. do a lot. It is a hard market. It's not something we sort of do a lot of. We don't sort of. It's not. It's on our radar, but we don't have anything specific in that space. But let me give an example of one deal we did from a social impact, which was a really beautiful deal. Um, uh, Age care. Okay. Now, um, we need currently, uh, if you look at the uh, Commonwealth Treasury numbers, Australia needs like a lot more aged care beds starting, well, about five minutes ago would be good. We desperately are short of aged care beds. Right. Um, in Queensland, for example, um, some of the uh, uh, not-for-profit providers of aged care, and they tend to be the high-quality providers in this space, their occupancy rates of their existing facilities are well into the 90%. Mm. So they need facilities. Why would something be not-for-profit in the aged care facility? Oh, it's things like uh, faith-based groups, so, you know, right. um, Anglicare, Prescare. And um, we got approached by one of our managers um, um, to say, look, um, we because they've been talking to some of the aged care providers and who, who tend to be, especially the faith-based ones, the religious ones, tend to be kind of asset-rich and cash-poor. So if mm. they want to build a new facility, they go into the arms of their local bank and the bank says, yeah, we'll lend you the money, but we want a big chunk of that money repaid quite quickly. Mm. Uh, and that puts financial pressure on the provider, yeah. uh, which in turn gets passed on to the patient yep. right, and their family. Um, the manager that approached us and said, well, look, um, there's a, a press care facility that they want to build in Townsville. Um, the uh, press care people, they own the land and they've got approval to build it uh, and uh, they've got a builder lined up ready to go, but they don't have the funding and they'd rather not go to their bank. And uh, would you look at this? And we looked at it and said, well, actually, you can design a system whereby uh, we buy the land off them. We then inject another um, another chunk Fund of money build. to build it and you lease it back to them over a very long-term lease with an op- so a 10 by 10 sort of mm. arrangement. Give them that certainty. And, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and they don't, we don't need to be repaid. We own the building. Yep. Um, and um, it was just a really nice investment because it ticked an urgent social need. We desperately need aged care facilities and new beds. But from the perspective of our members, it was a good thing to do with a nice return. Mm. So it's certainly – we're not giving up Can anything. Can you see that happening return. more often? I think we do. Mm. Um, it's certainly a model we'd like to, to look at to do elsewhere. Because there's probably and- a lot of sweet spots in the market where just because of policies or like other maybe arbitrary reasons, um, certain – uh, capital sources don't, don't get involved. Yeah, I mean, this is a new one. We're surprised. Um, I think others have done a little bit, um, but certainly a first for us, and I think it's probably the biggest deal that's been done. I, but don't quote me on that. I shouldn't really say that given this is being recorded, but it's certainly, <laughs> it's certainly uh, we're very much an early adopter in this space, and we'd certainly look at other opportunities like that. I think there's Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Mm-hmm. They, they have, uh, I don't know how you'd stumble upon those those guys, but uh, I know they do, They focus on impact investing. Yeah. yeah, look, there's a lot of stuff that can be done, but one thing you've got to be wary of is that, um, yes, our members um, are happy for us to be engaged in the community and want their super fund to be engaged in the community. And we do a lot of initiatives, like things like Dreams for a Better World, where we provide um, um, grants to um, emerging charities doing really interesting stuff um and uh you know we do we, and then we do sort of an annual award where you provide a, a more substantial amount of money to the annual winner okay so um our members are certainly happy for us to do things like that um but at the end of the day they primarily need a return you know primarily our sole purpose is to fund their retirement you know we describe it as you know getting our members to fulfill their retirement dreams mm-hmm. that requires return 
Uh, you might feel good about what we do, but if it doesn't provide the return you need to live on in retirement, then it's all fairly academic. It's all yeah. fairly. Um, well, that's the thing. You can look at it and go, well, like everything's risk priced. And if, like, if you go to take on more risk to achieve the outcome, you're sort of subsidizing the outcome. It's sort of. There's no free lunch, you know. You've no. got to, you know, if you want to return, you you're going to have to be prepared to take risk. I mean, I often say to people, look, we're not in the risk avoidance business; we're in the risk management business. You know, we take and manage risks, risks that we hopefully understand as well as possible, and risks that we can manage, um, and um, risks where um, we are very confident that we can be adequately rewarded for those risks. That's ultimately what we get paid to do. If we're not doing that, we're not going to be generating the kind of returns people need. But it also means that our members won't be able to sleep at night. Mm. And frankly, sleeping at night can never be overrated, right? Oh, um, we ideally thing. want our members to sleep soundly at night knowing their money's in good hands. Yeah. Mate, uh, look, um, obviously sunsuper.com.au is is how people can can get in contact with Sun mm. Super. But do you play a, a more of an active role in the uh, financial advice world or, or do you? I do get out and about and speak at the odd advice conference um, when I'm invited. Um, also starting to do, we're finding a number of financial advisors starting to use Sun Super as um, a very easy option for some of their clients who want a, a, a good performing value for money superannuation solution. And so that's been a growing part of our business. Um, happy to support financial um, planners that do that um, with client client seminars, for example. Um, and I've done that in my two former lives, um, which is lots of fun. I think getting out and talking to the end client and talking to the member, it just it's funny. My, my boss um, Ian Patrick, when he joined, um, he said to us, "Keep me in mind for member seminars because it helps me keep it real." Mm. And I've always remembered that because to me, getting out and actually talking to people who ultimately pay your fees, who you are ultimately working for. It helps keep it real. These people, you know, exactly. You know, people. These people should have a right to come up to you and kick you in the butt or shake your hand, depending on the day, right? That's what you get paid to to cop. Um, And um, as I said, it just helps keep it real. So I do stuff like that. I do the odd media gig. Um, Is there any side projects that you get involved with, or apart from the odd webinar with you guys? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, or non sun super activities that might be something different. I don't know. I mean, I, I yeah. What do I do? God, I don't do a lot of side projects. I mean, I've got sort of um, two teenagers who keep me occupied, and uh, you know, a wife who tells me what to do on weekends and stuff. So good wife. I have um, every good wife. I have plenty of I have plenty of stuff to keep me busy. You know, very but, good. Um, but well, my well, day how, job how is would great someone fun. reach out to you if they were interested in in, in uh, getting you to chat to their clients? Oh, look, you can hit me on LinkedIn. So I've got a LinkedIn profile, so you can sort of direct message me there. You can follow me on Twitter. I've got a really lame Twitter handle, though. It's called at Parkonomics, which I'm going to have to change because it's really <laughs> lame. And my son just – Keep my, it. My son, just, it. my son just rolls his eyes whenever he hears that because it's Wait a just second. So now lame. I love it. Oh, good. You're going to get yeah. tagged when the podcast comes out. It's so when the be... podcast comes out, I could I literally – Yeah, Parkonomics. I just need more followers. I'm trying to actually crack 400 followers if I can. It's very Ooh, marketable, it's actually. Uh, I can uh, see a brand there. I don't know. It's it's kind of naff, but we'll give it a go. You know? So so if people watch t-shirts. this and want to sign up, Parkonomics T-shirts. That's sad. <laughs> Hell yeah! You need to get out more, Aiden. Really <laughs> but yeah, it's um. But certainly following me on Twitter, and I don't barrage people on Twitter. I mean, if I've got something interesting to say, or if I read something interesting that I feel like is worthwhile, sharing do you ever try and start Twitter wars? Not really. I got involved in one, um, <laughs> that which I, badly. Um, it was one I usually over. This, do. It was one over. I sort of joined. Um, uh, um, Peter Fitzsimons was in a big debate about, and still is, about the stadium splurge, so-called. And, uh, oh, Elliot. And I just thought, you know, um, I've been to both stadiums. There's nothing terribly wrong with them and certainly nothing that involves 
spending that kind of money on two new stadiums mm. that are still relatively young in terms of stadium years. Yeah. Um, and so he was getting a flogging and there was some one comment that some guy made which I just thought was particularly – and it was more economics related, so I fired in. And that was a dumb thing to do because that was 48 <laughs> hours of my life. I'm not so, <laughs> there you go, uh, yeah. yeah. So I said, you know, so so, and I figured that Peter Simons didn't need my help anyway. So, uh, you know. Anyone that's listening, well, try easy. and start a Twitter war with no, economics. Well, it's easy to talk war, about our know. stadiums when you got access to the – like when you go up there so often, you can access Suncorp, the best stadium in um, in Australia. It's a great stadium, yeah. It is oh. very good. But, you know, um, it all comes down to me. Economic, economics is about opportunity costs. You know, what else could you do the money, do with the money? The cauldron. But it's about you know, watching it's sport. It's about yeah, watching sport. It's a lot of money for people who watch sport in Sydney and they can't fill the current stadiums. Yeah, no. You know, That's cause if you could get sure. seventy or 80,000 people at uh, at Homebush a week to watch a, a club game, terrific. In Melbourne, you know, on a, oh, I remember going to- They go to watch anything. Years, yeah. Like, yeah, they do, exactly, because it's Melbourne. But they they have the International years. Badminton Tournament and it'll yeah. be full. Well, I remember going to watch it. I went down to Melbourne a few years ago with my son and we went, we thought, let's go to the, let's go to the G for a game. And it was a really ordinary game. It was only- only Richmond Hawthorne, which at the mm. time Richmond was getting flogged, and so and the weather was rubbish. So they only had forty five thousand people. Yes. A small turnout, you know. Yes. But I just thought, really, that's a small crowd yeah. for an ordinary. And it ended up being a great game in Richmond. Well, won. what's hilarious you know. is they played the first Origin in Melbourne. And it was packed out, and it's yeah. bigger than when it's in, held in Sydney. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> it, it is true that people in Melbourne will just go to watch two cockroaches running across the G. Really, <laughs> that's yeah. what happens when you got better stadiums, bro. I don't know. Man. <laughs> don't know about that. We'll agree to disagree on that one. <laughs> All right. Well, mate, it's awesome to have you on. Thank you very much. Good on you. Thanks Appreciate very much, guys. Appreciate it. the time. Cheers.